to be honest, it was quite a problem deciding what to preach on today because every time I thought, yes, that would be a good verse, I would look up my records and find that I'd preached on that at a Bible League meeting sometime in the past. So the texts were few uh, that were brought to my mind as uh, very relevant and apposite text for such an occasion as this. And after much hard searching and prayer, I, I came to a well-known verse, which is more of exhortation uh, than perhaps of doctrine. But it's the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that exhortation, I, I think, maybe uh, may strike the right note as I return to the pulpit for another Bible League address. Be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Just a brief word of introduction. According to the book of Acts, Paul visited Corinth about AD 50 on his second missionary journey. He started his gospel work there by preaching in the synagogue and later continuing in the house next door. He left the area in AD 52, intending to uh, go to Jerusalem and to Antioch. Hearing subsequently of various difficulties in the Corinthian church, he wrote to that church in the spring, we think, of AD 55. His letter covers many things, but perhaps the most important truth covered, and certainly the fullest treatment of this truth in the whole of the Word of God, is found here in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul deals with the doctrine of the resurrection. And believers may have very poor understanding of this doctrine and their concept of the life to come can be very deficient. Uh, but there is to be uh, at death for the believer an entrance into paradise, into the third heaven where the Lord is. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And most of us would assent to that, I'm sure. But it is less commonly held, sadly, that there is to be 
at the return of our Lord, a resurrection of the dead. And whereas the soul is safe and secure at death in the keeping of the Lord Jesus Christ, what of the body? Well, there is a future for the body. And when Christ returns and his voice commands, the dead will rise. And that will be a glorious day when this corruptible put on incorruption, this mortal puts on immortality. And in Philippians, Paul tells us that when our bodies are raised, even though they've returned to the earth and to dust, when our bodies are raised by the almighty power of God, they, those bodies will be made like unto Christ's glorious body. And so we look for not only the uh, blessing of redemption of the soul, I use the word there in the sense of uh, deliverance of the soul, at death from all its ills, but ultimately we look for the redemption of the body, when the body will be released from trouble and relieved of sorrow and will be free from sin. And in the presence of the Lord Jesus, those bodies will be like his. Now this chapter falls into two parts. The theme throughout is a resurrection, but in verses 1 to 28, the emphasis is upon the resurrection of our Saviour. And then from verse 29 to the end of the chapter, it's the resurrection of Christian believers. And it closes with this uh, great exhortation here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I think it's important to see what has gone before the resurrection. And it leads Paul to this exhortation and the link between the subject of the chapter and that particular conclusion of the chapter is not difficult to see. If Christ be risen, then Christianity, authentic, biblical Christianity, is true. He has shown that he is worthy of all his claims, and he affirmed and defended the absolute integrity and veracity of the Word of God. And so the resurrection is a, is a great event saying to us, it is true from beginning to end. It is not partially true. It is not mainly true. It is altogether true from Genesis to Revelation. A second link with the theme of the chapter is this, that Christ died and rose again for us, that we should be his. So it is our duty to commit ourselves to him 
in full and entire consecration. And since he has died and risen again for our justification, for our uh, right relationship with God, for the removal of our sin, and for the imputing of his righteousness to us, thereby we have peace with God. We owe it to him to stand firm and to stand up for the Bible as the word of God and its doctrines as the truths of God. A third link would be this, between that is the subject of the chapter in this last verse. Christ rose from the dead as we shall rise from the dead. And so Christ is alive. And that's why his work has to continue because he is alive and not only alive, but the Bible says alive forevermore. And therefore the testimony of the Bible League must continue from generation to generation if the Lord wills and if the Lord pleases. It's not only a thing of the past. Whilst we honour, rightly so, the men that have been mentioned, even this afternoon, they were faithful in their day. We've got to be faithful in our day. And that's the reason why we are committed uh, today to the truth which this league is raised up to defend and still defends. Now, the apostle begins the verse in this way, Therefore, my beloved brethren, he calls them beloved. Who is it that loves them? Well, we can say they are beloved of the Father who chose his people before the foundation of the world to be without blame before him in love. He loved them enough to separate them in his mind and in his purpose that they might be his beloved of the Father. Secondly, beloved of the Son. When this uh, great reality was uh, brought up in the council of the Holy Three, that is, within the Trinity itself, the Father proposed the redemption of the elect, and the Son concurred, and not only concurred, but agreed to the way in which that redemption was to be effected by his coming into this world. And as the old theologians used to say, by his doing and by his dying. He lived a life of perfect obedience and obtained righteousness. And in the will of God, that righteousness is conferred upon believers, put into their account 
when they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are accepted in the beloved. And then he suffered the sorrows and agonies of the curse of the law, the just judgment of God, particularly at the end of his life. And there at Calvary, he died for us. And he willingly died for us. When he came into this world, he said, A body hast thou prepared me. I come to do thy will, O God. And when the Father proposed it in the everlasting council, the Son agreed to the proposal and his part in it, particularly of being the agent of his people's redemption. So we are beloved of the Son as well as beloved of the Father. And then thirdly, these people are beloved of the Spirit. In the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 15, it speaks of the love of the Spirit. And the Spirit is a person within the Godhead. And he has emotions as the other members of the Godhead have. And one of them is that emotion of desire and that emotion of delight in others and love, everlasting love. And when the covenant, as we call it, this, this proposal and agreement within the Trinity, it's a covenant because it was agreed among parties for the good of elect men and women. But when the covenant was made, and we speak most accurately of the covenant made particularly between the Father and the Son. The Father proposed it, the Son accepted the proposal, even though it meant his humiliation and all his sorrow unto death. But the Spirit must have been involved and was involved. He, he loved the very idea conceived and he concurred, that's the theological term often used, he concurred with the proposal and with the agreement of the Son and the whole matter was contrived in eternity past and it was signed, sealed and ratified in eternity past. The eternal covenant through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are beloved as these Corinthians were of the Father, beloved of the Son, beloved of the Spirit. And they are described here as my beloved brethren. In the grace of God, these people beloved of their God, in the way I've described, came into the blessing of their God. And the Lord began to work in them the ultimate change. And by the power of the new birth, by the power of God's Spirit 
in that experience, they were enabled to believe, they were enabled to repent. And so it was that they were made ultimately to be in the family of God, brethren together. And being changed and formally brought in to the family of God, given a place in the family of God, as Scripture says, better than that of sons and daughters, even better when we've said everything in the way of a privilege to be in a family. And the benefit of being in a family, we, we can't adequately describe how wonderful it is that we're brought into God's family, into the family of him whose authority we defied, whose law we broke, and whose son sinners crucified. It's exceedingly wonderful that we have any place amongst the children and we bear a name, a name which is so precious, the name of Christian indeed. We belong to Christ and to God the Father through him. And as a result of that, being brethren, the Lord God, fatherlike, cares for us. And when we are sad, he revives our spirits. And when we are troubled, he comforts us. And he meets all our needs. He is our heavenly Father. And therefore, Paul says, my beloved brethren, and he follows with his exhortation. Now, this exhortation, there are three important words here, and I want to comment briefly upon them. The first is steadfast. Be ye steadfast. The second is unmovable. And the third is always abounding in the work of the God, work of the Lord. So three words I wish to highlight, or in the last case, a phrase I wish to highlight to sum up Paul's teaching here and what I think the Apostle would say to us today were he in this pulpit and not uh, me. First of all, be ye steadfast. Be ye steadfast. You that have known the love of God, you that have benefited from the resurrection of Christ, you that are incorporated within the family of God in heaven and in earth, this is what you must heed and this is what you must take to heart. Be ye steadfast. Now that word seems to be related to good times. 
as I hope to show unmovable a little later, seems to be related to bad times. But steadfast, the word in the original here uh, is derived from a Greek word which means a seat. And therefore it means be ye seated with the idea of be ye fixed. And the associated idea, be ye firm. And in these days, that is surely something needed. There is a steadfastness in doctrine, is there not? The doctrine of the Word of God we must take hold of that doctrine. We must be faithful to that doctrine. We must hold the doctrine, even in the midst of an unbelieving and mocking world. Steadfastness of doctrine. We will not compromise with it, and we will not cast any doubt upon its truth. We will be, by God's grace, steadfast to the truth this book declares. And that exhortation is needed because we are constantly under pressure to change somewhat and to water down, to adulterate the Word of God or to just weaken our tenacity to its teaching the Bible League would stand with those who would say, never, never. This book will be our guide in life and it will be our support in death. And don't even suggest to me that I can loosen my hold upon this holy book. I'm reminded of and a story I read many years ago and impressed me at the time. There were two men who boasted of being atheists. And one became seriously and terminally ill. And he was in hospital. And his friend, his partner in unbelief, came into the hospital to see him, perhaps to cheer him. And he said to his friend, calling him by name, he said, Hold on, hold on. And the dying man said, but that's the trouble. There is nothing to hold on to. Well, my friends, be ye steadfast. Hold on to the book. And particularly to the authorized version, hold on to that because the book is faithfully translated in that version, hold on to it and don't let anyone weaken your hold upon the Word of God and this proven good translation of it. So there's a steadfastness in doctrine. There is a steadfastness too in behavior, is there not? And and conduct, where 
we imbibe the principles of God's word as to practical holiness. And contrary to the ethos which prevails today, there are some things, friends, which the Bible forbids for the Christian believer. And they must be forbidden to us because of the authority of this book. Don't adopt the world's lifestyle. Don't walk according to the principles of this corrupt world. Do you remember the apostle's word, be not conformed to this world? Someone has said that that means don't let the world be the mold in which you live your life. Don't let the world determine how you will live. Let the Bible determine that. And ultimately, let God determine that. That you might live your life according to the will of God. Be ye steadfast. And somebody may say, and if you're a young Christian, you, you may have thought this, but the Christians I know at university and college, they they don't believe this anymore and they don't practice this anymore. Well, so much is the worse for them. But we don't change our code of life by the generation in which we live. It's based upon the impregnable word of God, which is everlasting. And it doesn't change. Men may change their views on conduct. And Parliament may affect change in its legislation. But we refuse to follow them if it is contrary to God's word written. This is our code. This is our guide for life. And we hold the book of God in our hand and live. So steadfast in behavior. And then, thirdly, steadfast in endeavor. Sometimes people complain that meetings are not frequented as once they were, and sadly that must be conceded. Modern Christianity seems to think you can be a minimalist and get away with just one service a week, perhaps two, if you're feeling particularly holy, but that's it. But my friends, in endeavor, we are the servants of the Lord God. The God is alive. And we're not minimalists, seeing what little we can do to retain the name of Christian. But we are maximalists. We think to ourselves, what more can I do to serve the Lord? And whether we're young or whether we're old, that is our approach and that is our resolve. 
to do more and more for the God who loved us in Christ and by the Holy Spirit loves us still. We owe him everything. We give him everything. So in the good times, my friends, we want to be firm with respect to our principles and with respect to our beliefs, steadfast in doctrine, steadfast in conduct, steadfast in service, we will serve the Lord. Be ye steadfast. Now, the second word is unmovable. And I rather think the very use of the term here and the nature of the expression here suggests bad times. Unmovable. It's a similar expression to steadfast, but it has a stronger emphasis to it. A negative with the idea of not being moved an inch. Of course, and outside the revealed will of God. Unmovable. So even if we come under the pressure of the tempter and the pressure of modern society and the pressure of an increasingly worldly church, we will not give way. Because God's word endureth forever. And if it was good for our fathers, it is as good for us. And we don't just laud the great heroes of the past. We stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Unmovable. And that should be our position. Christ spoke in his earthly ministry of continuing in his word, thus proving our true discipleship. Job can say in Job 23 that he's adhering to the way of God and he refuses to give up or to move an inch with respect to that. Paul speaks, doesn't he, of keeping the faith. He's not going to be moved by the Judaizers of his day. He's not going to be moved by the philosophers of Athens or from anywhere else. He's not going to be moved by the unbelief which surges around him. Luther-like, he says, here I stand. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. The spirit of Luther should be in every believer. And had it been so, the church would not be in the sad and sorry state today in which it finds itself. It's no good just blaming the generation, the present generation. 
there was generation after generation which weakened and which was shifted under pressure. And we come into the awful consequences of that. A church that is enfeebled, a church that has lost its glory and lost its strength. Unmovable. So in times when Satan assaults and he can assault, Ephesians 6 speaks of the Christian warfare and speaks of the evil day. And there is a time when Satan comes in frontal attack upon the individual and upon the church professing. And at that time, there is only one way to deal with this arch enemy of God and his Christ, and that is to resist him. Resist the devil, Peter says, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So even if Satan seems powerfully to incite us to give a little bit of ground, to compromise here and there, and not to be so rigid and tenacious in our hold of truth, even if he brings his power to bear upon us and all his wiles into exercise, we will not be moved. Unmovable. It may not be Satan, it may be the troubles we face being Christians and the trouble we face in standing up for truth. You know, when our esteemed editor wrote uh, a review of a certain publication, which was much loved by the modern church, and it was an excellent uh, critique of this publication. A well-known evangelical said, these Bible League men are like frogs croaking in a pond. Many of you will remember John Marshall, greatly loved, and he was a dear friend, and he used to fool me regularly. And he had his way, you know, he had it in preaching, a unique style, but he had a, a unique way in ordinary conversation. And he very rarely said, hello, Malcolm, this is John Marshall here. No, no, I got right to the point. And the week after this uh, evangelical had called the Bible League Council, uh, Council of Frogs, croaking in the pond, the phone went, and I picked it up and I said, hello. I'm no frog, he says. He was then a member of the Bible League Council. And he was being unmovable. As if to say, I don't care what they say. But I shall hold on my way. Because it's right. Uh, say a little more about my dear friend, dearly missed, but when John Marshall attended the 
Westminster Fraternal, which he did for some time. And it was my privilege, while the doctor was alive, to, to join him and others, sometimes three or four hundred ministers in that place. And then at last the doctor became ill and, as you know, finally died. And a committee took over. Always beware of committees. Some are good, but uh, I sometimes have had sympathy with Spurgeon when he said, I believe in a committee of three with two on holiday. <laughs> but we mustn't be autocrats. I'm not advocating that for one minute, but uh, committees often talk all day long about doing something, but a man acting under the impulse of God will see that it's done. And sometimes that is required. So we may have Satan attacking us. We may have troubles and slanderous things said about us because we're too tight, we're too narrow, we're too antiquated in our beliefs. Well, thank God for that. It would be revival in the church if the church became antiquated and went back to where it should be and returned to the apostolic face of Christianity as seen in the church of the New Testament. We mustn't be moved by that kind of pressure. Unmovable in the work of the Lord. And it may be that we're assaulted by Satan, it may be by trouble, it may be by example. But everybody's doing it. And I've lived to see the day when churches have introduced bands and orchestras, supposedly to lead the praise of God. And it wasn't there. It wasn't there 25 years ago. It certainly wasn't there 50 years ago when I began the ministry. And what's it doing there now? Well, the answer to that question is it has been subtly brought in. And what was extraordinary in its inception has now become ordinary by custom. I remember visiting a Reformed Baptist church in the United States. It was a meeting that had been arranged for me. And uh, the man seemed very sincere. And uh, I believe a godly man. But there were all these things covered up on the platform, and I knew what they were. The shape left nothing to imagination. It was a drum kit. And there were trumpets and the like. And they were covered up. I think maybe because he, he knew my own beliefs on this. So he thought the best thing is to keep them out of sight. And uh, of course, perhaps I should have been quiet. I find that very difficult when my spirit is a bit stirred, you know. And uh, I got to know this man by the time I met him to the time I left, and we were standing in the church. And I said, do you mind me asking, what's all this? And he, he suddenly became very shamed in face and 
very apologetic. And I, I don't doubt his sincerity. He said, Mr. Watts, I'm desperately trying to get rid of it. Perhaps you'll favour me with your prayers that I will succeed. Now, I've got tremendous empathy and sympathy with a man who talks like that because his heart is right. And even ministers can't get away with everything that they would like to achieve in life. I, I think he, he, he thought good. It was good that it was in his heart. He, he just didn't have the support in the oversight and in the membership to bring it to pass. But we could say that a thousand times over, couldn't we, in the modern evangelical church. What's this? What's this? We have now a situation where all kinds of drama is introduced to the church. What's this? I read that the FIEC uh, in a recent declaration had said that they were going to help financially those churches that could come up with innovative and exciting ideas to reach the lost. Why is that word exciting so acceptable today? We don't want innovative ideas either. We want the old gospel preached in the old way with the blessed spirit resting upon both. That's what we want. And a group that says we need innovative and exciting ideas. I say, as a man who was once in the FIC, they have lost the plot and it will be ruinous in the end. Be steadfast, unmovable under Satan's attack, under the criticism you receive from the world and under the example of other evangelical churches, you are not obliged to follow them to keep your popularity. You are obliged to be unmovable in your hold and in your practice of the truth. And that's what we need. You know, I when I was preparing this, I, I thought back to the life of Kenneth McRae of Stornoway in Scotland. I don't know whether you know much of Kenneth McRae, and it's not for me to inform you in detail this afternoon, but he was a great free churchman on the island of Lewis, a place which I, I love very much, and my wife and I have visited there often. And uh, he was a man of tremendous principle, even though he knew that what he was going to say would be ridiculed and, and mocked. Yet, if it was true, and if it was taught by the word of God, he didn't care. Now, in McRae's day, as his journal uh, reveals, the uh, people responsible for travel and journeying in the highlands, decided to allow the ferry to come from the mainland 
to Stornoway to bring all the holiday makers on the Sabbath day. It was on the Sabbath day. And that's what moved Kenneth McRae. And on the first morning when these holiday makers would come over from the mainland, not to go to church, I might add, but just to live a godless Sabbath on the island of Lewis. McCrave was disturbed to the point that he went down to the harbour where the ferries came in. And they tell me he was a substantial man in stature. And he went down and he, he sat there in the way that the visitors would take and come onto the island. And in fact, in the end, he lay prostrate there. And these holidaymakers, who were going to desecrate the Sabbath, had to step over Kenneth McRae to get onto the island of Lewis. Now you think, maybe that's a bit eccentric. I honour it. And I think he was a man that had principle in his heart and in his very bones. And he deplored the Sabbath breaking that would take a journey to Lewis on the Sabbath day. And it was his protest and they tried to move him and he would not be moved. It probably would have taken a crane to do that anyway, but he wouldn't be moved. Unmovable. He stood for something and he stuck with it. Unmovable. And friends, that's where we've got to be. Maybe not on the ground at Stornoway, but in our church life, in our own private lives. We have to be unmovable. Come what may. We will not, we cannot be moved from the teaching of this book. Steadfast then, unmovable then, and thirdly and lastly, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember, that God, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has made us his. As Paul says to the Romans, we are not our own, we are the Lord's. And he says we do not live to ourselves, we live to the Lord. And therefore we have no right to do any other in life. If you're a Christian, a professing Christian, you have no liberty to live other than the Lord would have you live. So you are conscience bound to his mandate and his command. Ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a, cry, a price. And therefore, whether you live or die, you must serve the Lord. Charles Wesley put it in that piece he wrote, preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. 
as a minister. That must be my motto and my objective. To make him known to all. To evangelize personally. To evangelize with others. To evangelize with Christ's church and spread the glorious gospel of the blessed God while we have breath to spread it. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Christians should be abounding Christians. Paul refers to that with respect to himself, doesn't he? When he says, in labors more abundant than the false teachers. Always abounding. Never being at the position where we say, well, I think I've done enough. You know, the true believer thinks, I've never done enough. How can I repay the debt of love I owe to him? And therefore, God giving me strength and ability and opportunity, I will serve the Lord. And let the world frown upon me and speak against me. But all that matters to me in my best moments, when I'm really spiritual, all that matters and all that should matter is that the Lord above looks down and smiles with approval upon my life and my testimony and my work for him. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not only evangelism, of course, but also doing service in the church and caring for one another and showing loving kindness to others and visiting others and praying with others. The list is endless. But there's always something to do. And clearly this verse suggests that we don't do enough, generally speaking. There are exceptions. But generally speaking, we don't do enough. And therefore, the apostolic exhortation is abound always in the work of the Lord. I find that really challenging. Always, when you're tired, abound in the work of the Lord. When you're comfortable sitting beside a fire and wonder whether it's really required that you attend church tonight and go out and meet with others, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And this is where we turn modern practice on its head because modern practice says one service is enough. God's people say, two services is hardly adequate. I love the house, O God, wherein thine honor dwells, the joy of thy abode, all earthly joy 
excels. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than a dweller in the tent of wickedness. And therefore, rise my soul from sloth and carelessness and make your way to the meeting of saints, the gathering of the redeemed, and join them in the worship of God Almighty. And that word always Always. I know that real frailty can prevent this and I don't wish to bring great agony of conscience upon those who physically can't come out as once they did. I'm not talking about you, my dear friend, who may be infirm, but I'm talking about those who have all the strength and ability in the world and they can't be bothered. That's the people that need to hear this exhortation. Always abounding. Is, is there no relief then? No relief. Can I not absent myself once or twice? No, not once or twice. When I get in older years, can't I? Give way a little, no, no, always, all the days you live. If you can, your love for the house of God requires your presence at the house of God. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the text concludes with this. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We've heard men mentioned this afternoon, Bishop Thompson, to whom I only spoke once on the phone, but I felt a bond with him in that short conversation we had. And I think it moves us, as he was and as others were that have been mentioned, to be faithful our lives long. The awful example of a believer who starts making concessions at the end of a professing life is fearful. And yet... We've all seen it, we have to say, with great heaviness of heart. You know, I knew him when he was in his teens and a more zealous man you couldn't meet. Look at him now. Nowhere near what he was in his teens. I can think of other men and don't understand me to be in any way judgmental. I'm not judging men, I'm judging practice or the lack of it. And you think of a man of whom you could say he was, a, he was a stalwart at one time. For purity of worship and for the whole counsel of God, he was a stalwart. And at the end of his life, he had to be in a church which was otherwise minded. And he went along with it. I never want 
that said of me, I tell you, before God, I never want that said of me. Frail as I may be, I never want to give way to what I believe. My convictions are convictions written upon my heart, I believe, by the impress of the Spirit of God. And as long as I live, those principles will indelibly appear in my conduct and in my behavior. As I live, so I hope to die. And the Bible gives me this quiet but blessed assurance. He said, your labor, if you are steadfast, unmovable, bounding in the work of the Lord, your labor will not be in vain in the Lord. You will leave behind you a legacy of tenacity for truth, a legacy of consistency of conduct, a legacy of holding to the faith once delivered for the saints and contending for that faith. That's the legacy I would leave. Not that of a man compromised. Not that of a man who let go not that of a man who changed his opinion. Always, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your testimony will be honored. God will see to it that it is honored. And men will remember you, how you lived, what you believed, and how you behaved as an example for good and not for evil. So when it comes to pass that others go their ways and the question is raised in heaven, will ye also go away? Not by the grace of God, we won't. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. These words, we will tenaciously hold on to them to the end. Until death translates us from sorrow to glory. My father and mother died together one weekend and it was totally unexpected that my father was at the very brink of death. And I spoke with him, and when Mother died on the Saturday, he was present in the ward. They brought him in just to keep an eye on him. My brother and I spoke to him. 
he arranged his funeral. He told us who the undertaker should be. Well, it wasn't his funeral, he thought of his mother's. Who the preacher would be, which was my dear friend, Mick Harris. For whom he had great respect. And afterwards, I stayed with him for the night. And the last words he uttered before I sat in the chair at his bedside were actually the last words he spoke. And I said to him, Dad, faith has got to be very simple now and hold to the truths of God's word. And I cited John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's got to be that simple, Dad. You've got, you've got to consider that. And you know, my father turned to me and he said, Son, I believe that with all my heart and I'm holding on to it with both hands. And that is how Next day, he entered eternity. I can't think of a better example than my father. And it often comes to mind, how would I wish to die? I tell you, in a word, holding on to this book with both hands holding on to the gospel of grace with both hands, holding on to the whole counsel of God with both hands, and thus leave earth for heaven. And it will not be in vain. Because such Faithfulness is never in vain. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen.